This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Beaumont University. Beaumont University, now hiring for two philosophy professor positions, including one department head. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. This week, it's Haunted Houses Week on Pod Cemetery with 1976's Burnt Offerings and 2002's television miniseries Rose Red. Not based on a novel by Stephen King, but written by Stephen King. Yes. Before we get the show started, Kelsey, what do we do? (laughs) Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. All right, give me what you got. In 1941's The Wolfman, the protagonist Lawrence Talbot buys a cane decorated with the silver bust of what animal? A wolf? That is correct. I mean, I could have guessed that. I know. But we did see it. Even though it had very little role in The Wolfman, it just kind of appeared and had no point. It was an important plot piece in Wolfman. That is true. Kelsey. Yes. What is the name of the protagonist of the Scream series? Sydney. Can you tell me her last name? Prescott. Surprise, Sydney. I don't know how I just came up with that. <laughs> That is correct. All right, Kelsey, first up is 1976's Burnt Offerings, directed by Dan Curtis, written by William F. Nolan and Dan Curtis, based on the novel by Robert Marasco, starring Karen Black, Oliver Reed, Burgess Meredith, and Betty Davis. What would you say Burnt Offerings is about? A family decides to spend the summer in a massive estate, and the price is way too low for a good reason. (laughs) All right, nice little teaser. Should people watch the movie? I liked it a lot. I know a lot of people don't. I know it's a lot of people think it's bad. I don't know why. Yeah. I was pretty good. I think it's worth watching. Absolutely. And when we get back, we will talk about 1976's Burnt Offerings. It all began as a summer vacation. A young family found a beautiful old house. So you are the people who want to rent this house. What do you mean it's $900 and then it's all ours? They thought it was the answer to their dreams, but it was the beginning of a nightmare. In this old house, up this staircase, behind this locked door, something lives, something strange, something powerful, something evil. Stay away from that door! It will possess this woman. It will destroy this man. It will terrify this child. And no one can stop it. Burnt Offering, starring Karen Black. Have you ever... 
actually trying to tell me that this house is responsible? Oliver Reed. This house is destroying us. Betty Davis. This house is getting so cold. Burgess Meredith. And this house will be here long, long after you have departed, you believe me? Behind this door lies a horror beyond imagination. Who is it? Where did it come from? What does it want? When you find out, it will be too late. Burnt offerings. Kelsey, what happens in Burnt Offerings? Can you get us started? We open on our family. The main guy you would know from The Brood. He's the doctor. He's the doctor in The Brood, yes. Or if you had the same childhood as me, he is Bill Sykes from Oliver. That is Oliver Reed is his actual name. Yes. And I don't know who his wife is. I know the kid was in something famous, but... Uh, oh, um, girls just want to have fun. He's the guy that she has a crush on. His wife is Karen Black, who was in Five Easy Pieces. She was also in House of a Thousand Corpses. Interesting. Yeah. And the son is Lee Montgomery, who is Ben in Ben. He's also in, yeah, like you say, girls just want to have fun. Mm-hmm. So they go to this giant house to see if they can rent it. And they're renting it from... A brother and a sister, and one of them is Burgess Meredith. Yeah, who you would know as either Mickey from the Rocky franchise, you're a bum, (laughs) or the Penguin from the Batman 66 series. Yes, and they are practically giving it to them for free. For two and a half months, they get it for $900, and this place is enormous. Uh, The book describes it as having 30 rooms, and it certainly looks enormous. Ben's a little nervous. He mentions that he's waiting for the catch, and they're like, there's no catch. Oh, well, there is one thing. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be rude. It's just that, uh, well, I was waiting for the catch. Catch? Well, you mean it's nine hundred dollars, and then, and then it's all ours? No, but there is one other thing. It's hardly a catch. No, it's not a catch. It's our mother. Their mother is going to stay in the house. This is uh, Eileen Heckert and Burgess Meredith play Roz and Arnold Allardyce. They're the owners, and uh, they're brother and sister. They call each other brother and sister, and their mother stays in the house, and she stays in her room. They're like, you'll probably never see her. All you have to do is just fix her meal and put it on the tray outside her door three times a day. Yes. And they act like that's not even a big deal. I'm sorry. That would be a huge deal. Like, at that point, it's almost like, you pay me? Yeah, exactly. But they, they do mention that if... They didn't charge something that people wouldn't stay there for the exact reason why Ben is worried because it's too cheap. That's only in the book. They is don't, it? They don't say that in the movie. Oh, I thought they said that in the movie. I must have been. Uh, okay. Yeah, no. Uh, in the movie, the father is very skeptical. He's like, what the hell? Why would they let us stay here for $900? Doesn't make any sense. In the book, they actually initially say $700. hmm And then- the brother, Burgess Meredith's character, 
uh, says, no, it's 900 because he was worried that the, the guy would be like, that's absurd. Why on earth would you let us stay here for 700? And it is right out of the gate. You know something's up with these two. They seem way too eager to get them to stay there. They seem way too excited about a young family full of life. Oh, and you have a kid? Oh, that's so great. We love that there's going to be a kid here. This house needs children or Mm -hmm. whatever it is that Roz Allardyce says. But it is this like giant estate, basically. It is in disrepair, but it's beautiful. Yeah. But it's very important that we say that it is in disrepair. They And she even comments on it. She's like, such waste. It kills me. And I should mention here that the movie and the book are practically word for word. There's more detail in the book, of course, but up until the last, not even full quarter, it's almost word for word what happens. We should also point out that this house is the now famous Dunsmuir house. This was the first time it was like used in a major motion picture, but it would go on to be the house in Phantasm. It was in A View to a Kill and So I Married an Axe Murderer and True Crime. It's been used in a lot of films. They are also going to bring an Aunt Elizabeth with them. Betty Davis. Betty Davis, who is in her 70s, but she does not act like it. No, she is fantastic in this. Yeah, she's pretty I great. love her in this. Yeah, she's pretty funny, but I-, I liked her better in the book. In the book, she seems a little more lovable. In the movie, she's more just funny. Yeah, but they have a great relationship. Yeah. She has a really good relationship with the rest of the family, but in particular, her nephew, Ben. Yes. Um, they get along fantastically, and they're constantly, like, ribbing each other and stuff. Like, it's it's really cute. It is a cute relationship. Talking about the relationship, we should probably mention that they all hated each other on set. Really? Yes. A lot of it had to do with Betty Davis being very difficult. Uh-huh. She hated Which... all of them. Um, <laughs> she hated how Karen Black would constantly, like, apply makeup in between scenes because she's she, she says, well, now all the filming is going to be inconsistent. You're going to, you know, obviously we had no idea and didn't even notice it, but she was very particular about that. But she really really disliked Oliver Reed. Apparently she called him, quote, that man, and they only ever talked when they were on set together. Apparently she described him as possibly one of the most loathsome human beings I've ever had the misfortune of meeting. Part of that was because Oliver Reed would drink a whole lot and he would like mess around in the the house that they were that they were staying in or the hotel that they were staying in with his stunt man and they would go out drinking all night together and there's a story of him ruining the food that's on the tray this little roller cart outside her room because they <laughs> they were betting each other that oh I bet I could ride it farther than you could and all the food went everywhere according to Turner Classic Movies she accepted the role because she had to pay bills ah. and, and she wanted to work. This is my favorite story. She complained to one journalist that her co-star Oliver Reed had gotten drunk one night and tumbled down a hillside while playing the bagpipes. 
interesting. Instead of Karen Black, she sleeps all day, never goes to rushes, and you can't hear a bloody thing she says on set. When I made movies, you could hear me in a tunnel. <laughs> also, according to a book about her, she would, quote, yell so often at producer-director Dan Curtis that he walked off the set and disappeared for days. Wow. She walked in and out of other people's dressing rooms, hollering that the original novel by Robert Morasco stank, that the screenplay was lousy, and that she might have to rewrite the whole thing herself. Well, doesn't she sound like a bundle of joy? Yeah, and when Curtis called her out saying that the things you're saying about the book and the movie aren't going to have a good effect on the outcome of this film that we're in, she, quote, yelled at him so furiously that the poor man retreated in tears and later vomited in the men's room. When told of this later, she said, good. It got all the damned puke out of him. Let's hope he took a good crap, too. He was full of it when I talked to him. <laughs> Betty Davis, quite the character. <laughs> I mean, it just, hearing all of this just makes, if you've seen the TV show, what was it called? Feud. Feud. It makes it real. Yeah. Which is funny, because I feel like Feud made What's-Her-Face seem even worse. But Betty Davis sounds Joan like... Joan Crawford. Yeah, but yeah. Betty Davis sounds like a piece of work. Yep. <laughs> anyway, she's great in this. Yes. <laughs> and I love their relationship. The two, no, two of them that cute. apparently hated each other, they are fantastic together on screen. Yes. But before they take the house, uh, the sister does say the house takes care of itself. Only if you love it as much as brother and I do. And it's just like all these things, just none of them seem to have an effect on the wife. And that is because the wife, I feel like the movie doesn't do a good enough job. I mean, you can pick up on it. You can figure out that she is obsessed with cleaning. She wants a nicer life. She wants finer things. But I feel like the book does a much better job of explaining why she becomes as crazy as she does. But she just won't pay attention to any of the signs. Oliver Reed's character is like, this is fucked up. But <laughs> he loves his wife and his wife mm -hmm. desperately wants it. So he gives in. Yeah. And so she, she, like, like Kelsey said, she desperately wants the place so she's the one like i'll take care of everything you don't have to worry about anything you won't have to worry about the mom i'll take care of mrs allardyce she's the only one like at first she's really worried because she like knocks on her door and she doesn't answer but she leaves the food and apparently some of it was eaten but not very much uh, but she loves the house and she loves all the framed pictures that mrs allardyce collects not at first so you have to remember, this is an old-fashioned house, so the la the old lady's room is just off of a sitting room. It's like a lady's yeah. sitting room. And uh, so she goes in there, and that is its own little room, so she can close that whenever she wants to, and she can be in there, but she can't get into Mrs. Allardyce's room. It's supposed to be locked. I don't know that she ever tries to get in. I don't know if right. she does. She says, you know, this whole wing is basically off limits. They, the rest of the family just kind of accepts it because they figure she doesn't want the sun going up there and knocking things over and bothering the old woman. Yeah. Right? So they just kind of accept that. And Oliver Reed's character is like, oh, crushing that I don't have to yeah. deal with this lady. Whoopty shit. <laughs> At first, the wife is nervous. She's like, 
She never comes out. She doesn't eat anything. I'm really worried. And when she first sees this this big, like, table filled with pictures, at first she's very concerned about it because it's like she's looking at them and she's realizing none of them are smiling. And in fact, some of them almost look scared. Oh, interesting. So she she notices that, but then eventually she lets it go. This woman lets a lot of things go. (laughs) (laughs) In the beginning, when they're just talking to the brother and sister, the the boy, the son, is running around outside, and Burgess Meredith sees him fall and get hurt and says nothing to the family. In fact, he licks his lips and says, like, how good kids are for the place and Uh let him run around as much as he wants to. Yeah. When they find out that he's gotten hurt, they take him into the kitchen, and this other guy, who's more in the book than he is in the movie, I don't even know why they put him in the movie, uh, he, like, works for the brother and sister. And Walker, he's, he's the caretaker, yeah. He's, he's a fun little character himself. Yeah, and he's about to throw out one of the dead plants. So they have this entire solarium just filled with dead plants. Yeah. And he's going to throw one out, and Burgess Meredith says, stop. Look. Look again, yeah. And it's coming back to life. And this is just after the boy has cut open his knee. Where are you going with that plant? Who's it said it was dead? Did she? Well, look again. Huh. Ain't that something? So then when they stay there for the first night, they find that, oh, how nice. The Allardyce has left us all this food. How nice. And, uh. Well, we should say when they show up. They're the Allardyces aren't there. There's just a note that said we had to rush off. Everything should be great. And then that's like it. But yeah, you're right. The whole place is stocked full of food and they're all really excited about how basically everything's taken care of for them. Yeah. And so Betty Davis goes into the pantry to get something and she's like, oh, the light doesn't work. I found your first job to uh-huh. Oliver Reed. And then Oliver Reed goes to open up a bottle of champagne, and as Chris said, he cuts his finger, Uh and then the sun goes into the pantry, and the light suddenly works. Yes. Are you starting to notice a connection? Yes. It's pretty obvious. Um, It's pretty obvious from the get-go, but nobody seems to notice that the light suddenly works. Then the next day, they're all going to go out to the pool. But they got to get it all ready first because it's all gunked up. Yeah. So Davy is in the, the pool sun. and he's raking out the leaves in the pool. And Ben's working on the motor pump that pumps the water into the pool. Meanwhile, they've asked the wife to come out. But she doesn't. Yeah. She is obsessed with cleaning the house. Yeah. Getting it all nice and wonderful. Yeah. So. <laughs> They get the pool working and like there's this whole scene where like the sun fixes the pool motor and you think that's going to be important. It has nothing to do with anything. It, it's nothing. It means nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Why it's in there, I don't know. But then they're like walking around the grounds and they come across a graveyard. And like they're they're showing us here that the father and son have kind of a goofy relationship. The, the father like gets all creepy and runs after his son And it's, you know, it's all in good fun, but it's showing us that they do have a very typical father and son relationship where they mess around and they kind of roughhouse together. Uh But there are, what Ben notices is that 
all the headstones say Allardyce, but there haven't been any new headstones since like the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. You know something, Davy? They're all Allardyces. And I haven't been able to find one any newer than the 1890s. Be spooky, eh? The implication is, where are all the other Allardyces after the 1800s? Why would they have been buried anywhere else but here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, back at the pool, they are enjoying themselves. And the father finds a pair of glasses in the pool that have a crack right through the center of one of the eyes. Like, something clear. Those weren't his glasses? No, they were not. Oh, okay. So, Chris just asked, were those his glasses? And if you were any regular film goer, you'd probably be asking the same question. Yeah, here's the thing about his glasses and like the first scene, <laughs> they are all over the place. The script supervisor was not doing their job. Nope. Or Oliver Reed, also probably likely, Drunk. was not cooperative. <laughs> And they're just like on his face, off his face, on his head, in his hand. They're all over the place in between cuts. But you're focusing on the glasses. So then when he dives into the pool and finds these broken glasses at the bottom, I just assumed they were his. As did I. And then I read the book. (laughs) All right. Uh, So the glasses are meant to signify previous tenants. Yeah. uh Uh-huh. And when, when the father finds them... He goes down a deep rabbit hole of, oh, my God, what does this mean? Where did these come from? Why are they still here? What is that crack right through the middle? We None don't get of this is in the movie. Any of that in the movie. He just finds them, looks through them, and then changes on a dime. Yeah, he starts roughhousing with his son in the pool, who we know can't swim because they keep talking about, don't jump into the deep end. It's so deep. And yada, yada, yada. Uh, and he starts messing around and doing a thing like you would normally see a father and a child doing like he's grabbing him and tossing him up and, and splashing him into the water and throwing him around and like rough housing. But then it just kind of goes. And all of a sudden it's like zero to 10 and Davy is panicking and Ben is being like, he's still acting playful, but he's being super aggressive about it. And he's and then, holding him under the water and Davy is like drowning. Yes. And then at one point, Davy gets away from him and and he and Ben is coming towards him with this creepiest shit look on his face. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that's when Davy's like, fuck that dad and hits him in the face with uh, his mask that yeah. he had. And and Ben's nose starts bleeding. And that knocks him out of it. Yeah. That wakes him up. And he's like, what am I doing? What was I doing? Right. Right. I wrote here. Jesus Christ, this pool fighting scene, it went from zero to ten in no time. How is he going to explain his behavior? Well, the answer is he doesn't. The next scene we get is him dreaming because he's really (laughs) upset. He's in bed and he's having a nightmare now. And he's dreaming about his mother's funeral and a, a bunch of men like chauffeurs are standing around the cars in the cemetery and chatting and laughing, and one of these chauffeurs with this big grin on his face just kind of stares at him with this grin. And that apparently really stuck with Ben, like his whole life. It creeped him the fuck out. The story is that Dan Curtis 
experienced something very similar. It was a laughing chauffeur outside of his mother's funeral. Like, that actually did happen to him. And that really disturbed him seeing somebody laughing. So the chauffeur is in the book, and he does have several hallucinations of him standing outside and idling hearse. And he hallucinates about it several times in the book. Yeah. But apparently Dan Curtis wrote the the smiling bit in, which is really what makes this chauffeur so fucking creepy in the movie. Dan Curtis wrote a few different changes to the movie, most notably in the end. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Ben wakes up and goes down to the pool. And that's when his wife wakes up and goes down to talk to him there. And he, she's like, oh, it's no big deal. He's fine. Yeah, I wrote, he seems suitably upset about his behavior. He is absolutely devastated that that happened. And he can't explain why he behaved that way. And that scares him. And she's like, of course I know you didn't want to hurt him. And he's like, no, that's the problem. I wanted to hurt him. Yeah. And it's it's really driving him crazy. He's freaking out about it. And the next time Davey sees him... Ben's like, hey, are we cool? Are we okay? And and Davey's like, I don't want to go anywhere near that pool anymore, Dad. And he gives him a big hug. Mm-hmm. He, he associates that awful experience with the pool, not so much with his dad. Because he can see his dad is fine now and obviously feels horrible about it. So he's like, that pool is the problem. Mm-hmm. And they do notice that after all that roughhousing and after he got his nose bloody, the house has completely changed. Everything looks a lot better. Yeah. The next time he's alone with his wife, he goes down to the pool again and he's like, I needed to see if I could come down here. And it's at nighttime. And she's like, well, baby, why don't you go in? It looks great. You're in your suit already. And he's like, I'd be better if you came with me. Yeah. And she's like, I don't have a suit. And he's like, well, you could go naked. And um, when she gets in, it's like, obviously, he wants to have sex. Why else would he ask you to go in naked? Right. And And they are, like, being very flirtatious with each other. Yes. And suddenly, she just, like... She starts pushing him away. Um, Eventually, they get out of the pool. He basically, like, pushes her down. to rape her. Yes. Effectively. And she just keeps saying, you can't, you can't. Don't you understand that you can't? Um, I don't want to. Not here. Now, the way Ben is behaving is obviously bad. And I think that that's part of what's going on here but he's also confused with her reaction uh it's not hey don't do this it's you can't like there's some reason why some external thing and he has no idea what she's talking about and he's like you know what's made me so repulsive you know like i i'm not expecting it to be fireworks after 13 years but come on like why aren't we having sex anymore And I feel like, again, the movie doesn't do a great job of explaining why she's acting that way. She does keep looking up at the house. Yeah. Telling us that it has something to do with the house. But even I, while I was watching, I was like, I don't get the connection here. And the book spells it out. It's basically that she's embarrassed because of the house. And also, when you find out what is happening to her, 
you understand that that what's happening to her is is tainting her opinion of her husband. Yeah. So then next day we see that this aunt who has been nothing but fun and laughs and let's go do this and let's go do that is suddenly draining. Yeah. She looks older. She's mm-hmm. saying how tired she is, how all of a sudden she's taking a lot of naps, which is not like her. Mm-hmm. And um, at one point, the the wife is like, oh, honey, why don't you go take a nap? And she goes, I guess I will. And then she gets up to the bed and she's like, no, I won't. I refuse. And so she decides. She's going to go say hi to Mrs. Allardyce and introduce herself and not be rude yes. by not introducing herself. And this is when. She gets up to the sitting room yeah. and Marion, the wife, won't let her in at all. Not even yeah. into the sitting room. Yeah. And she keeps kind of, like, Betty Davis keeps trying to, like, look around her and, you know, oh, come on, like, whatever. Yeah. And she's just like, no, she's sleeping and she doesn't want any visitors right now. And I'm doing something in here. Yeah. So Betty Davis eventually just gives up. But you can see that, like, going up and down the stairs is taking it out of her. Yeah. So the next thing that happens is it's it's late at night and Ben wakes up from another nightmare and he's walking around the house and he smells gas. And it's coming from his son's room, but the door is locked. So he busts down the door, picks up his son, and he carries him to another room, to an open window, and then he goes back into the room, shuts off the heater, which is leaking gas, and tries to open the window and can't. And he's almost suffocating, and he smashes the window open mm-hmm. to aerate the room. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows what happened. It's not until Marion and the aunt, Betty Davis, are talking that Betty Davis is like, the heater wasn't on when I went in there. And Marion's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You went in there? Why were you in there? And he's like, oh, saying goodnight to, to Davy. No, she she's saying you I lock I go, the door. I go in there to watch him sometimes because yeah. I can't sleep because none of them are sleeping well in the house. Right. And she's Marion like, gets angry at her. Yeah. She's like, Well, did you close the door? And she's like, I don't think so. And she's, she's like, getting really confused. Did you close confused. the windows? And she's like, I don't think so. No, the window was open. Actually, I remember that the window was open, and he was so cold, and I put a blanket on him. That's all I did. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of weird because it kind of comes out of nowhere, and the audience is left wondering why the fuck would Betty Davis even say that? Right. Um, Just keep your mouth shut. <laughs> but she's she's really confused, and that's the thing. Yes, she's getting confused. And the wife chalks it up to she's getting old. Yeah. And we need to accept that. She's mad, of course, but she also was just like, you're old, sweetie. Like, you're forgetting things. And Betty Davis freaks out. Then she will believe me. I believe you, too. No, you don't. It's obvious. We all forget things, Elizabeth. And uh, at your age, I... Don't forget things. I know what I do. She is overcome with just shock that the she wife would insinuate something like that. Would yeah. insinuate mm-hmm. that she did it, um, and so she retreats to her room. This is all while Ben has taken Davy to the hospital. They get back to the house, 
And Ben is like, why are the clocks suddenly working? Yeah. And the wife lies and says, oh, I've been winding them. Yeah. Well, where were the keys? We didn't have the keys. Oh, the keys were in the clock compartments. And it's like all convenient answers. He's like, you know, why are you so nervous? And she's like, I'm not, I'm not. And uh, he's like, well, you know, I don't like what you said to Aunt Elizabeth. It's just, she's just like, oh, you know, I'll apologize later. The son, Davy, like, breaks a bowl and the mother freaks out about it. Yeah. Davy, be- oh. Look what you did! Look what you did! And don't you ever touch your thing! I didn't mean to do it! Don't you ever touch your beautiful thing! What do you care more about? These things that don't even belong to you? Yeah. Or the well-being of your son? Because you really freaked him out and you were being violently aggressive with him. Yes. Ben was not okay with that, even especially after what he did to his son. I think he knows that's a feeling that he doesn't understand, and he doesn't like it, and he didn't like it, and now he's worried that it's happening to Marion, too. Yes, and Ben delicately tries to get his wife to make a choice, and he says, you know, would you give it up for me? Would you do that? And she very much slides around the question, which basically gives him his answer. And she's like, you don't understand. I need more time here. She, the old woman is my responsibility. I can't leave. And he's like, you're not answering my question. If I asked you to, would you give this place up? And it seems like such a simple thing. Yeah. You know, but she just won't. Right. And he's like, what if I hadn't gotten... To Davy in time. She's like, what does that have to do with the house? And he's like, you're ignoring everything that is happening. Yeah. This house is suddenly working. Everything is in perfect condition. The clocks work. You know, all this shit is happening and you are not listening to any of it. But then he goes to check on Aunt Elizabeth again. And she is not doing well. No. She can barely get up. She can barely move. She's groaning. This is like top form elderly Betty Davis. I think she does a great job at this part. Yeah. And then like at one point, like she kind of breaks her arm because she tries to use her arm to get up and it won't work and it breaks. They're like, okay, we need to call. Who's the doctor that we called when Davy got hurt with the gas leak? And he goes to call and- busy and he comes back in and he's like it was busy and she's like oh well we'll have to try again he's like no you don't understand i didn't just call that one doctor i called all over the place and every line was busy what is that including the operator including the operator yeah and so marion leaves and she goes to try and he's sitting with his with his aunt and she comes back in and she's like i got a hold of the doctor he's coming she leaves, and he's waiting with Aunt Elizabeth, who is barely breathing. Yeah. And then in comes the chauffeur. Yeah, so Ben hears a car in the driveway outside while he's sitting in the room with his aunt. And he looks outside, and he sees that hearse, and he sees the driver, and he's freaking out. And Betty Davis can't see the driver, but is also freaking out. And doing a great job of it. Again, I got to say, she's really fantastic. And he's approaching and they're both scared and they don't know what to do. And he comes in pushing a casket and 
shoves it towards them at the screen and the ant is dead. Yes. So they go to the funeral. We we cut to the funeral, but Marion's not there. Mm-hmm. She's back at the house. She goes into the solarium and full bloom everything. Mm-hmm. So when he gets back, he's really pissed because it's clear that she has been cleaning. And also <laughs> she like lights the candles and she's like, we're going to have a lovely dinner. And he's like, wow, life sure does go on. And she's like, well, why shouldn't it? Yeah. And he, so this is when he gives her basically an ultimatum. He's like, Davy and I are leaving tomorrow with or without you. Are you going to come with us? And she, you know, what's the term I'm looking for? She hems and haws and all of that. Yes. And he's starting to see that the house is regenerating. Yeah, because he he's he's sleeping it's- in the room with Davy because he's really worried and he doesn't want to leave his son. And that's when he starts hearing this stuff in the rain. So it's raining outside and he starts hearing this this clinking and this falling and this crashing. And he looks outside and it's the shingles of the house just sloughing off in the rain. And underneath it is perfectly good, beautiful, brand new shingles. Mm-hmm. And so he grabs Davy, gets into the car. And Davy's like, what about mom? What about mom? And he says, effectively, fuck your mom. Which, I don't know about you, but that was, I mean, that's completely stolen by the haunting of Hill House. Yeah. Uh-huh. With the father grabbing the child, putting him in there. What about mom? What about mom? Yeah. Uh-huh. Fucker. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, we got to go. Don't worry about mom. Yeah, totally. And they he tries to drive out, uh, and he's driving down the pathway and a tree just falls down in front of them. And he's like, oh, what the fuck? And so he tries to move it out of the way. And while he's doing that and the kid's in the car, the tree branches start wrapping themselves around his legs and stuff. And he's getting like kind of cut up and assaulted. And he manages to struggle free. And that's when the wife shows up and drives them. Well, because he he – Tries to drive through the tree. He's yeah. just trying to like hit it enough times to get over it. And he eventually hits his head. Yeah. And, and so, so he's Marin, knocked out. Yeah. And so Marion comes in, gets in the car, and takes them takes back. Takes them back. And Not at- concerned about the tree or what was happening or why he wanted to leave. No, we just need to get you back. And when, when Davy's like, what's wrong with daddy? She's like, we'll just need to get him back to the house. He'll be fine. And the father says... It's kind of his last lucid moment for a while. Um, it's happening, and you're letting it. Yeah. You're part of it. Mm-hmm. You accept it. And she just kind of gives him this look like, I don't know what you're talking and about. And when he, the next time he looks over at her in the driver's seat, she's the chauffeur. Yeah. And that's the moment that he snaps and goes catatonic. Yes. He's sitting outside the pool the next day in a chair and he's, again, catatonic. And Davy's like, come on, dad, dad, here. Like, he's trying to cheer his dad up and snap him out of it. And he's like, listen, I've gotten much better at swimming. And the only reason Davy's nearby the pool right now is because he's trying to make his dad feel better. Remember, he hates this pool. And he jumps in the pool into the deep end. And he's like doggy paddling around trying to keep afloat. And he's doing an okay job of it. And then... 
like a wave machine <laughs> happens and it gets really rough and choppy in the pool and he's struggling to keep afloat. Marion from upstairs in the sitting room can see the pool and she sees this happening and she starts freaking out. But she can't get out. But she can't get out. None of the windows will open. The doors are struggling to open and she's running around. She ends up breaking a window just like Ben had done earlier in order to get out and save her son. This whole time, Ben is struggling because he sees it happening and he's gripping the chair and he's tensing up and he's he like pulls himself out of the chair and he's dragging himself forward so, so slowly fighting against whatever's keeping him frozen and he can't make it there. So this is the part where the movie and the book say bye-bye. Yeah. Yeah, he's trying to pull himself up. He can't. The wife goes, dumps in, gets Davy out of the pool. And Ben says, I tried. I tried. Yeah. I had to watch. Uh-huh. I, I tried. Marion, I tried. And the the boy is like, I hate this place. I want to leave. This is when Marion says, we're leaving. We're leaving. So they get all cleaned up because the next time we see them, they're all dry and yeah, and, <laughs> and Ben's no longer catatonic. Yeah. Um, they all get in the car. They're about to leave. And Marion says, I forgot to tell Mrs. Allardyce that we're leaving. And Ben's like, basically, fuck her. And she's like, no, I need to give her the phone number where we are. So she, if, if anything happens, you know, we can, uh, she's taken care of. Yeah, and he he's begging her, pleading with her, stay with me. Let's go. It will get better once we leave. But she doesn't. She goes back inside. Goes back inside. They wait for a little while. And you can just tell by Oliver Reed's face, he's just like, she's not coming back. Mm-hmm. He's like, all right, Davey, you got to stay here. I'm going to try to go get your mom out. So he goes inside and he can't find her anywhere until he goes into the sitting room and he sees all the pictures and the frames and all of that. And he sees her, the door to her bedroom is actually ajar. And he goes inside the bedroom and he sees Mrs. Allardyce sitting in a chair facing out towards a window, and he's like, uh, Mrs. Allardyce, you don't know me. I'm Ben. I've been the person who's staying here. Just wanted to let you know, you know, we're going to be leaving. Have you seen my wife? (laughs) And she doesn't respond. And so he walks up closer to her in a very psycho moment. Very psycho. Turns the chair around, except it's not a decomposing skeleton. Nope. It's Marion. And she is aged. We and didn't her mention hair is gray. We didn't mention that she started to get gray hair, but yeah. whatever. But now her hair is completely gray, and she looks like she's um, post-stroke almost, and she's staring like face down, but eyes up at him, really, really creeping him out. What does she say to him? I've been waiting for you, Ben. Maria. I've been waiting for you, Ben. He freaks out and dives through the window. Oh, God. 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 Oh,
This is on the top floor, <laughs> dives through the window, slamming on the car, <laughs> smashing the windshield, his face stuck through the windshield and all bloody. And when this happens, Davey. blood gets all over Davy, and he's like, ah! <laughs> And he runs outside screaming for his mom, screaming for his mom. And he's running around the house and he doesn't want to go inside. And the house is regenerating. So all this because stuff is now Ben's off. dead. Yes. That's another life. Like when when the aunt died, it got new shingles. When Ben dies, it's getting a new chimney and all the brickwork is falling off. And so as the brickwork is falling off, what's effectively an entire chimney collapses on Davy, killing him. And Marion, Mrs. Allardyce, is still inside the room with that crazed look on her face. (laughs) We see an external shot of the house and the grounds. Because, again, we forgot to mention that there is a whole wall dedicated to... Like, pictures of Pictures of the house from the same point of view, looking grand and perfect. Right, yeah, (laughs) but but all really old. Yes. Uh, And this is... This is basically that that same shot, but it's completely rejuvenated in bright color. Everything, it's gorgeous and absolutely beautiful and, and well-kept. We see this with a voiceover of brother and sister Allardyce talking to each other about how the great place how great the place looks and how healthy and youthful their mother is now. We have our mother back. Yeah, we have our mother back. Oh, it's beautiful. Just glorious, like it used to be. And our mother. She's back. Our darling. Restored to us. In all her beauty. Her glory. With us, once again. While they're talking, this is zooming out, and it's really just a photograph Sitting on that same wall, a brand new version of the house, and it pans over to all the other photographs that are being collected. And we see a photograph of Ben and Davy and Aunt Elizabeth. And there's no Marion. Yep. And that very shining moment, even though this takes place before the shining. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Stephen say- King. <laughs> what? What? Stephen King loves this movie. Yes, he does. He really does. He absolutely loves this it's movie. It's a great movie. I yeah, don't, I, I don't, don't know why people hate it. So I don't much. get it. It's not scary. It's absolutely not scary. It's creepy. But it's creepy. It's a creepy idea. And it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And I was engaged the entire time. Mm-hmm. I loved the relationships and the interactions between the characters. I was interested in like people talk about how this is just a movie that's just it's boring and it's full of horror tropes. And it's like, what do you mean horror tropes? First of all, this is 1976. What horror tropes? Like the horror tropes prior to this is not what's in this movie. Right. And and stuff like okay, I guess Psycho with the turning of the chair, right? But I've never seen a haunted house movie where the house is literally haunted in this way, mm-hmm. in the way that it's regenerating because people are dying mm-hmm. and getting hurt. Like, I've never seen this concept before. I've never seen the shingle slough off revealing new shingles. I've I, like, I've never yeah, seen it, this. It showed us the regeneration, which felt a lot like Christine. But again, Christine came after. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the picture 
Shining. Yeah, that came after. Yeah. And the tree wrapping itself around him. Evil Dead, that came after. Yeah, like, I don't... Yeah, I don't know what everyone's problem with this is. I don't either. There's only one review on Rotten Tomatoes that takes place from around when this movie came out. And that's Roger Ebert. We'll get into a little blurb of what he thought about this movie. Um, But all the rest are, like, modern interpretations of the movie. And I wonder, is this people just, like, not understanding linear time? (laughs) But it's also like it's not poorly shot. No, I think the the chauffeur it's is creepy. is really creepy, and it's not like he has nothing to do with the movie. Like he absolutely does. It's all wrapped around Ben's psyche and the concept of death. Like I don't I don't get why people hated this movie I don't or they think it's dumb. I I really don't understand it. Neither do I. And I think my biggest complaint would be that they don't give enough enough insight uh, to believe the taking of the wife. Yeah. In the movie, it's just very much like, I love this sitting room and I'm going to ignore my family now. Yeah. Uh, And you know, the book gives us way more insight. It makes me hate her more <laughs> right. than I already did, but it gives us more insight. Into what she's thinking and how she's devolving and all of that. But do you want me to tell you what happens in the book? Well, first, Dan Curtis apparently loved this book and reportedly said after he read it that he pities whoever has to turn this into a movie. Uh, mainly because he hated the ending. He hated how open-ended that the ending was, and he decided to rewrite the ending, which has Ben jumping out the window and smashing into the car and Davy getting crushed by the bricks. Um, but how is that different from the ending in the book? In the book, basically, Ben never comes out of his catatonic state which just tells us he's dead. Right. In order to make this movie ending happen the way that it does, Ben has to just miraculously snap out of his uh, catatonia. Like he struggles to break free. And then the next time we see him, he is. That's an inconsistency with the movie. And it's the deviation from the book. So why is it that Curtis thought that that was better? I don't understand that. I don't either. I mean, I would assume that his reasoning is because that's when Marion snaps out of it. And Marion is the driving force behind the the house reproducing or whatever. Right. So maybe when she snaps out of it, he does too. He snaps too. out of yeah. it too. Uh-huh. That's what I would assume. But in the book, he never snaps out of it and Davy just drowns. And even though the wife does try to get out, like in the movie, she just plain doesn't. She never gets out of the house. And then... After they're dead, she sees that the house is just glorious, and she just kind of is like, all right, it's done. And now I can be united with Mrs. Allardyce, who I've so desperately wanted to meet. So she goes to the room. She bangs on the door, saying how unfair it is that now she's given up everything. She still doesn't get to meet Mrs. Allardyce. Well, the door opens, and she sees this hideous old woman for only a moment, sitting in a chair, and then she goes and sits in the chair. 
Which is effectively the same ending that he gave us. It's just that. He gives us a little bit more concreteness with that, the fact that she is Mrs. Allardyce. Yeah. Or she becomes Mrs. Allardyce. And then we get a last scene with the brother and sister just kind of materializing <laughs> um, back in the house saying how great things are. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much the same. He just gave us a little bit more, like you said, concrete. We don't actually see in the book, like, we don't read, oh, he drowned and died. Yeah. We don't actually read, oh, he was in a catatonic state and just died because his brain was mush and no one was feeding him anymore. Uh, but do you need to tell me that? Yeah. The the book told me that when it said that the solarium completely bloomed. Yeah. And you told me that when... The wife is banging on the door saying, I've given you everything. There's nothing left for me to give you. Yeah. So, I don't know how there's any confusion there. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. The ways in which I feel like the movie isn't effective, apparently, are the ways that it deviates from the book. <laughs> Curtis made some bad decisions. Interesting. Do you have anything for lightning round? No, I think we've hit on everything. I just want to explain the concept of burnt offerings this is a this is a real thing in the way that the original term holocaust is an english term meaning sacrifice burnt offering is a concept in judaism it's another form of sacrifice but it's like an ultimate sacrifice what you are offering you're offering in this in this case is completely burned on your altar uh, just a normal sacrifice is usually partly burned, and then you eat a lot of it in communion as the sacrificial meal. In this case, the whole entire thing is burnt until there's nothing left, and that's called burnt offering. So you can see this is the sacrifice that, I mean, it's it makes more sense in the book that Marion is making, she's giving up her entire family until ultimately that's not enough. She has to give up everything, including herself. Yes. It's the burnt offering. It's the sacrifice of all of it. I did forget one large difference between yeah. the book and the film that is not about the ending. Yeah. And this kind of blew my mind when I read it. And I'm like, I don't know if I preferred in the movie or not. You can tell me what you think. Mm -hmm. After the ant dies, the picture shows up. And Marion sees it. And Marion at first is disgusted with herself. And upset with herself and is like, I can't do this. This is too much. I can't do it. And Walker, the caretaker, suddenly appears. And she's like, please tell them I can't do this. They have to come back. I have to go. And he's like, no, you don't. Yeah, Walker doesn't come back after no. the first one. And he actually has more of an adversarial relationship with the Allardyces. Well, he does in the book, too. I don't know why. I guess maybe because he's also there to take care of the house. Yes. But he, yeah, he he's just like, you're fine, honey. You just keep doing what you've been doing. Mm -hmm. And when she's like, but I can't, I can't. He can tell she's weakening. And he's like, you're going to give up all of this? Yeah. I mean, a good movie relies, it needs to by necessity because it's a lot shorter. But also by design, you don't want a lot of exposition and you don't want to 
you know, a lot of it's done more through symbolism and subtext. So you wouldn't want a scene like that where she's ex- exclaiming, you know, I can't do this anymore. I don't have anything left. You know, like that would be me and him saying, no, it's OK. You just keep doing it. That might have been a little too on the nose. And right. Cutting. But what I think is more important here is the fact that she sees the picture. Yeah. Which forces her to finally accept. To reconcile that, right. yes, something. Because throughout the book and, and in the movie, she sees the things. Yeah. She just chooses to ignore them and chooses to rationalize them. But that she can't rationalize. There's no rationalizing about it. Yeah. So do you think that's more effective? Like showing, showing us that yeah. she actually made that choice? I'm fine with it being cut from the movie in that context. I think that's not good enough to keep and it and it brings up a whole lot of questions that would take longer in a movie to answer and would divert too much from the core plot so i'm fine with that being cut from the movie i think when you have the time to get into explanations without characters talking and stuff like that like you do with a book and you can just literally write out what they're thinking maybe you can do that more effectively but i didn't read the book so i don't know what do you think the movie got on Rotten Tomatoes? I'm going to guess it's pretty damn low. First of all, there are only nine reviews. Oh. 33? 33 is right. Holy shit. Three out of nine reviews were positive. That's it. There is no critical consensus, though the Robert Roger Ebert one and a half star review says burnt offerings is a mystery. All right. What's mysterious is that the filmmakers were able to sell such a weary collection of ancient cliches for cold, hard cash. Like, fucking, really? Also, did you go into this movie thinking it was a mystery? <laughs> it's it it's right on the surface from the word go. Mm-hmm. What's happening? You're just watching it unfold before you. Mm-hmm. Like a train of dominoes. You know, the first one's knocked over at the beginning of the movie when you meet the Allardyces. And you're just watching them all get knocked down for the rest of the movie. What mystery? What, pray tell, made you think of Domino's, honey? Oh. Oh, yeah. Uh. Wow, I wasn't even thinking about that. That'll be a good transition Uh. into our next thing. Um, Metacritic of 48, as expected, closer to 50 than the lower review. So, what would you give it? I'm going to give it a 78. Really? You think that's low? No, I thought that'd be a little high. Oh. I was going to max out at 75. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I don't get what, but I love haunted houses. Yeah, you do. I do. Haunted houses and slashers are my are my jam. But I mean, I cared I I enjoyed the concept of the house regenerating every time they were hurt. I liked that. I liked seeing the house regenerate, but I was more interested in what was happening to the family throughout this process. I was more interested in Ben's internal conflict. I was more interested in the conflict that he had with his wife. I was more interested in what was happening with Marion. I was more interested in how these – the fact that he's haunted by this chauffeur from his childhood is brought back up because he they mention he hasn't had that nightmare in forever, but it comes back when he's in this house and how it dredges up his old horrors, even though they're unrelated to the house. Like that all that stuff was really interesting. 
And I don't get it. I don't get it. Yeah, I thought I yeah, I I I thought it was very creepy to watch this tight-knit family right fall apart. And again, it's not scary. There aren't any jump scares. The creepy parts are when Aunt Elizabeth is dying, the chauffeur, what's going on when he's trying to drown his son. There's action moments where you're tense, like when Davy is dying in his bedroom because of the gas leak, when Davy is drowning in the pool and, and Marion has to try to get out of the house, which won't let her leave now. There are tense action moments, but none of it's really like scary you know not like oh all the lights go out and what could be around the corner like it's none of that it's not that kind of haunting well and i mean i think it's also just super super creepy to see it where the female the matriarch is the one that gets possessed right because we've seen amityville horror where it's the we've dude. seen the shining yes where, where it's, it's the, the dude. dude and neither of those felt like those families were tight-knit Right. Whereas this one really did, and watching the mother give up on her child for this house, that's powerful. That's a that's a creepy idea because we're so used to mothers being the ones that take care of their children. Right. And it's not the same in The Conjuring. Mm-hmm. In The Conjuring, she does everything to fight against it, a fight against the possession. Whereas in this one, mm-hmm. she's very okay with what's happening. Amityville Horror, again, came out after this movie in 1979, <laughs> three years later. And that's a that's more of a ramp up of the father going crazy and weird shit happening in the house. It's more of your traditional haunted house movie. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm saying, like, what cliches are they talking about? I don't know. I don't get it. Anyway, that is Burnt Offerings from 1976. You should watch it if you have the opportunity, if you haven't already, even though you listen to it. Because like I said, it's it's fun just like watching this happen mm-hmm. to this family. Next up. Dominoes. <laughs> yes. Talking of Dominoes, <laughs> a movie called Rose Red or a TV miniseries called Rose Red where a little girl plays with Dominoes. <laughs> but before we talk about that movie, Kelsey... Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. What 2006 Superman Returns co-writer directed 2007's Trick or Treat? Oh, God. Who directed Trick or Treat? 2006's Superman? The co-writer of Superman Returns. Right. Yeah, that's the 2006. He directed Trick or Treat 2007. I don't know. Michael Doherty. Never would have gotten that. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> you write down all that information. Yeah. But I mean, how many names do I read in every single episode? This one is much easier. So easy, in fact, that it is multiple choice, and I am not going to give you the options because you'd better get it without the options. Okay. In the A Nightmare on Elm Street series, Amanda Kruger is what? She was a nurse? No, she was a nun. That's right. She was yeah. a nun. She was a nun at a mental asylum. That's why I thought she was a nurse, because I, yes. I knew it was patience. A nurse is an option on here. School teacher, nurse, nun, or police officer. But she was a nun. 
raped by a hundred maniacs. Or a thousand maniacs. A hundred. What was it? Yeah. That makes more sense. Yeah. (laughs) More believable. The bastard son of a hundred maniacs is what Freddy Krueger is called. But that doesn't come until way later in the series. We got to start watching Nightmare on Elm Streets. Yeah, that's like five or six. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. All right, Kelsey, let's move on to 2002's Rose Red, written by Stephen King, but not based on one of his books, and directed by Craig R. Baxley, starring Nancy Travis, Matt Kessler, Kimberly J. Brown, Melanie Linsky, who we saw in Castle Rock, Matt Ross, David Dukes, Emily Deschanel, who is Bones, and Jimmy Simpson. It's a large cast, and trust us when we say you know almost all of them. Yes. Uh, (laughs) What is Rose Red about? Rose Red is about a professor of... Parapsychology? Something. Or whatever. So the class she teaches is the psychology of the unseen world. And so she's in the psychology department. But she deals in the paranormal, and that causes issues at her college. But anyway, we're not there yet. So she decides to take a group of psychics or people with psychic abilities uh, into the what's known as the most haunted house in America uh, called Rose Red. And it's in Seattle. And they go there. And as you can assume, bad things happen. Yes. That's it, right? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Should people watch the movie? I thoroughly enjoyed the miniseries. Myself. I should say it's like three episodes, it's like four hours long or something like that. You can't find it anywhere unless nope. you try to obtain it illegally. Should people seek it out? I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. I would say yes. I love haunted houses. It is absolutely a television miniseries. It is absolutely, absolutely a Stephen, a Stephen King, King miniseries. television miniseries <laughs> just made in the early 2000s, I love which doesn't King. help things. <laughs> yes. No, the, the effects are awful. But uh, You should know what a Stephen King television miniseries is like. Now, imagine that in the early aughts. And it's not based on one of his already good books. It is. In part based on a book written by somebody else called The Diary of Ellen Rimbauer, My Life in Rose Red. I've never read that book. I don't know anything about it. Um, But originally, Stephen King wanted to write a film version of The Haunting. But then The Haunting came out. And God, was that a terrible movie. And so he was like, well, I guess I'll just write my own version. Yeah. And... It is inspired by, I will say, a lot of different other haunting movies and stories. If we want to talk about cliches, it is full of them. Also, I would like to remind everyone that Chloe recommended that we watch Rose Red. And she wanted us to watch it with The Winchester, which makes sense once you've seen Rose Red. Yeah, it does. However, we couldn't do that because Rose Red and the Winchester are both within 20 years. Yeah, because Rose Red is a lot more recent than you would think it would be. I like, what is Rose it. Red? What is Rose Red even? Like, I, do you guys remember this being on television? Because I, I vaguely 
vaguely do. And I wouldn't have been able to tell you that it happened in the 2000s. I don't think I was allowed to watch it because of how terrified I was of it in the stand. My parents were like, you can't handle this. (laughs) So I wasn't allowed to watch it. (laughs) So, you know, take from our conversation here what you will and make your own decisions. You're the best indicator of whether you would be into this. And when we get back, we will talk about 2002's Stephen King's Rose Red. (laughs) From the imagination of Stephen King comes a disturbing new epic tale. There are rumors that you're planning a scientific investigation of Rose Red this summer, a sort of psychic field trip. Is that true? For Professor Joyce Reardon. My goal is modest. A single twitch. It's time to stop the silliness. The truth is out there. When I come back from Rose Red with proof, you It's sleaze. It's a spit in the eye of rational thought. Now, she has assembled a team of gifted psychics. Hello, are, are you the group? I think we're ready. To unravel the secret. Waking up Rose Red is not a good idea. Rose Red is a dangerous place. That was built to last. If you wanted this place to wake up, I'd say you've been successful. If some houses are born bad. Annie, what is it? I insist you stay a little longer. This one. We shouldn't be here. It's feeding off us. Was created. It's stuck again. She means to have her proof, even if someone has to die for her to get it. In hell. Stephen King's Rose Red. So we're going to do our best to get through this plot because it is four hours worth of content and we got to get through it somehow. (laughs) So, and apologies if we sound weird. We are recording this like first thing in the morning. Mm -hmm. All right. So the movie starts in 1991 in Seattle where we meet one... Annie Wheaton. Reports say, who knows if they're true, that Annie Wheaton is named after Ann Wheaton, who is Will Wheaton's wife, because Stephen King worked with Will Wheaton in Stand By Me. It was random, but okay. I mean, like, of all, he's worked with a lot of people. I know. I don't know. It might just be entirely a coincidence. But the fact that her name is Annie Wheaton, like... Wheaton is not the most common name. Right. And he just happened to have worked with this young kid named Will Wheaton in the past. And his wife's name is Anne. It might all be a coincidence, but it might not. Anyway, (laughs) she is an autistic young girl, but she obviously has psychic powers. A dog attacks her, a normally very docile dog. And she drops rocks on the house of the family whose dog it was. And this takes forever. It's an entire opening segment where we're just dealing with this one concept. And it just takes forever. And then rocks fall on the house. Forever. Forever. (laughs) So anyway, that's like the intro. So the actual movie takes place some 10 years later, around 2001, where we meet up with uh, Dr. Joyce Reardon, who works at a school called Beaumont University, and she teaches the psychology of the unseen world, and she's just wrapping it up. (laughs) So we get her entire course load in three statements. Number one. The investigation of psychic phenomena is an honorable pursuit 
in spite of the field's tattered reputation. Number two. Reality is not always quantifiable. Our inability to count, weigh, sort, or photograph some things does not mean that those things are non-existent. And number three. Next week's exam will not be graded on the curve. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's very cute. Yeah. And then she leaves them with one final phrase. The truth is out there. But right off the bat, she's kind of a bitch. I gotta say, she starts out kind of likable, and you might like, ooh, she's feisty. But like, so she's confronted by Jimmy Simpson in her class. And he's like, I hear you're going to be investigating Rose Red. Is that correct? And she's like, you were sent here by another professor who wants me out of this school and wants to disgrace me, little Jimmy Simpson, (laughs) writer on on the school newspaper. And they make it a big deal, like it's, oh, it's the university newspaper. It's, whew. And she's catty back to him. And there's this whole exchange that, again, takes forever and is not great at communicating anything because she's trying to be deceptive to to this character. So it's this isn't a great opportunity to to provide us with exposition because she's being deceptive. You know what I mean? Well, we learn that she's taking a group of people to uh, on a psychic hunt. Do we? Because she denies it. That's my point. It's not a great vehicle for exposition. I mean, I kind of like Jimmy Simpson already. So I don't really know whose side to be on here. He's just a college kid being manipulated. So it's not really his fault. Right. And she's a bitch to him. Which is why, like... Because he's an extension of the professor she Totally, like. totally. And we get all that later, but right now, our first impression of Dr. Joyce Reardon is that she's kind of mean. And then when we go into her office later, and this random student who looks like Molly Ringwald pops in and is like, Professor Reardon? And she's like, get out! Not now. My office hours are clearly posted. Can't you read? They're like, Jesus! And then she apologizes. Yeah, but, like, why is it just so aggressively They are showing mean? us that she has that in her. Yeah, and they need to it, because, because it's it gonna gets br- brought out. Later. It's gonna come out later. But this is one of the things that's a little muddled for me. It's it's like is she just a bitch, or is is the house doing something to her? The house just brings out the worst in her, right? But so it's not like possession or anything. Anyway, we'll get to that. So then she gets together this group of people to start this expedition and has this whole orientation meeting. And the group is Vic Kandinsky. He he tells the future. No, he's the older guy. Pam, who is what they call a psychometric. She can touch things and tell their history. We've had a few of those in this, in in our show, like in Puppet Master, for instance. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kathy, who's an automatic writer. She starts writing circles on a piece of paper and that turns into words. And that's how she is psychic. Nick, who's he's, Oh, he's does a little bit of everything, but really he's a telepath and he's a remote viewer, but he can do a lot of things. He can do a a little bit of a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of a Jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah. Uh, Emery, 
who is a post cognate. He can, it's the opposite of Vic, the, uh, the elderly guy. He can see things that have already happened. And in particular, he sees basically the ghosts of people. Yeah, and it's great because he's so used to it that when he sees them, he's not even afraid of them anymore. It's almost like if the kid from The Sixth Sense grew up yes. and learned to not- Oh, totally. That's exactly what it is. Didn't have a psychologist, but learned to not be afraid of them anymore. Right. He was. He says often, try it on somebody who's not poor. Broke. Uh, broke, yeah. Give your warnings to somebody who's not broke. Read my lips. Save the warnings for someone who's not broke. Okay? Right. So he basically is like, I'm probably going to die, but- I, I don't have a choice. I have to do this. Because <laughs> his mother, he lives with his mother, and yeah. he's basically an Eddie character from It. But yeah, Eddie, who is grown up and miserable. Yes. And, and uh, sarcastic and fat. Hilarious. Which is funny. He's great. He's hilarious. He's great. He, he's an awful person, but he's great. But I mean, he's in a he's fat just suit. Honest. Yeah, he's uh-huh. just honest. He's not really. I mean, he's kind of a dick, but for the most part, it's just like, no, I'm just saying what everyone is thinking, and everyone is too afraid to say. Right. So, of these people, just just really quick, in case you're curious, uh, who plays everybody? We have Emery, who is Matt Ross, who you might know from Silicon Valley. He's the guy who runs the Google. He was also in American Psycho, the one who has the crush on. Yes, the and hits guy. on him in the restroom. Yeah. Nick is Julian Sands. He's that British guy. Vic is Kevin Teague, I think is how you pronounce his name. I'm not entirely sure. Pam is Emily Deschanel, who is Bones. She's barely even in the movie. I don't know why she's even in it. Oh, she barely has a role. She kind of disappears early on. Yeah, and we don't even, I don't even think we get to see really what happened to her. We just have to assume she died because she basically turns into a ghost. Yeah, kind of. Um, Pam. Oh, we had just did Pam. Uh, hold on. Vic, Pam. Okay, Kathy. Kathy is Judith Ivy, who's a very lovely uh, Christian old woman. So she gets offended whenever anybody is blasphemous. Now, the only few people left are Steve Rimbauer. This is Joyce's boyfriend, played by Matt Kiesler. And he is a descendant of the Rimbauers who own the Rose Red Estate. And he is letting her rent the house for a weekend before he finally sells the place. We haven't told our audience what Rose Red yet is. Rose Red is supposedly, and this is what Joyce tells everybody. At the... At the orientation meeting is supposedly the most haunted house in the world. Or in America. Yeah. And she goes over this history of all the things that have happened in the house until eventually they stop doing tours sometime in the 90s. It was like 95. Yeah. At which point weird shit stopped happening and it becomes what she calls a dead cell. But it's exactly what the mouth breather says. He's like... It, you stopped giving it fresh meat. Of course, it's going to stop doing anything. Right. There have been no phenomena in Rose Red for five years or more. Since they stopped the tours and took away the fresh meat. Isn't that what you mean? Exactly. And she wants to go back inside to investigate it. And it's like, it, it's this weird conflict because she's telling everybody it's a dead cell. Nothing's going to happen. Don't worry about it. 
but also I want to go there and study the phenomena. Well, is it dead or is it not? What well, are you going to study? They exactly, and she says all I'm looking for is a twitch. Right. I just she want wants to something. see a little bit. And I gotta say, Steve, secret protagonist. Yep. He's the secret main character in this in this story, and you would never know it. Well, the thing is, is that when we first meet him, we automatically learn he is the descendant Rimbauer. He's the reason she gets to study the house, and he's her boyfriend. It's like, how does he not see that he's being used? Right. Well, that's the thing. But he's also renting it to her. She is paying for it. It's, and it's not only like one weekend. Right. Exactly. And he is eventually going to sell the place, and and it will get bulldozed. So. This is the group who's at orientation, but there are a few people missing. And that is Annie Wheaton, uh, who's played by Kimberly Brown, who you might know from Halloween, Halloween Town. Town. She's the older sister in Halloween Town. Uh, she's the psychic, the cra- the one who brought the rocks down on the house. And her sister, Sister Wheaton, or Rachel Wheaton, played by Melanie Linsky, who you would know from Castle Rock. There's this whole drama about, oh, the family doesn't want her to the whole that whole fucking thing can just be ripped out of the of the story. Absolutely, completely. It has no impact on the story whatsoever. It it just explains why Annie is there with her sister. But Joyce wants her to show up and Rachel cannot promise that she can go. Are we going to tell them the history of Rose Red? A bunch of weird shit happens. What What do you think the history is? All of the descendants of Rimbauer are swallowed up by the house, except for Stephen's grandfather, and that's because he is sent away to boarding school for, like, his entire life, simply yeah. because the house is evil and swallows up its its people. Yes. Oh, right. There's this whole thing, but there is one generation that's particularly important. There is Ellen Rimbauer. And John Rimbauer, this couple, and Ellen's best friend she brought home from Africa, who's kind of a servant, but kind of a confidant, Zucchina. And it sounds like they're saying through the entire movie, Zucchina, like Mm -hmm. Zucchini, but with an A at the end, and it's really weird. (laughs) But her name is Zucchina. And we'll see them throughout. They'll be haunting this place. Yes. But Ellen built the place kind of like Winchester where she was told by a psychic to keep building and never stop. and Or that it would never be done until she said it was Well, done. that's the thing. She's like, you, you need to keep building this place. And Ellen says, but it's done. I'm already done. And the psychic says to her, it's done when you say it's done. And so you just need to keep building, basically. But it's the weird thing because this is a sham psychic who is – is a total And she's terrified when it starts actually working. Yes. Yeah. So it's like, oh, man, there's really ghosts that really want her to to continue building. And anyway, it's basically the Winchester story. But we will see Ellen specifically and Sakina throughout the story. And that is a thing that will also happen. The house will change. New rooms will appear and disappear. Yes. So think... Like how the Winchester house was built, where it's, you know, dead ends and stairs that go to nowhere and stuff like that. 
But in this story, Rose Red does it on its own, and it does it more when it gets more power from people inside of it, like, just like Burnt Offerings. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, yes. so great pairing. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Jimmy Simpson shows up to this orientation and takes a picture of them all doing a circle where they're holding hands and concentrating or whatever. And it's really embarrassing for her, for Joyce, because she's using a bunch of company equipment that's thousands and thousands of dollars. But I wonder, why do they have equipment she can use to detect ghosts if it's not meant to detect ghosts? I just don't understand. (laughs) But the head of the psychology department is a total ass, played by David Dukes, not David Duke, David Dukes, uh, who actually died during the filming of this show. He was intended to be more of a ghost later on in the movie, and we don't see him after his character dies. Spoiler. Which one is this? He's the the head of the department. Oh. Oh. Yeah. He's great. He's fantastic. He's a total dick for no reason. Well, not no reason. He thinks that she's an embarrassment to their department and their college. But the truth is... Like, if you put the lasso of truth on him, he is frightened. Yes. It terrifies him that there are things in this world that he cannot explain. And And so he has to shut her down to prove it to himself. And she 100% assaults him. At one point, she, like, shouts him down and she cut herself. And then she rubs blood all over her hand secretly while she's yelling at him. And then just rubs it all over his face. Yes. And she's and he's like, you better not have given me anything. And he's all embarrassed and everything like that. Like, no, I'm sorry. You're going to prison. Or at least you're getting sued for a lot of money. <laughs> That's assault, brother. <laughs> That's assault, brother. You can't do that. See, again... Are we supposed to like Joyce? Like, we're on her side because he's an asshole, but then she does that, and it's like, no, that is uh, too far. <laughs> again, they are preparing us for the crazy shit she'll do later. Uh-huh. But also, there's, but they're setting, I'm, my point is, they're setting her up as the main character, and yes. as the story goes, that transfers over to Steve and Annie, yes. who, by the way, doesn't show up to orientation because Rachel can't guarantee she can go, but she does show up for their first day when they're going to the leave. the dad pisses her off. Yes. Yeah. She demands to go. She doesn't talk hardly ever. So then they go to Rose Red, and Jimmy Simpson is there as the reporter. He's going to sneak into the house at the behest of the professor. If you don't know who Chris is talking about, he's the... He's the, he's the white hat in Westworld. Yes. The professor sends him in, and he's, like, not really comfortable doing it. He gives him a cell phone so he can call him when anything weird happens. Just just catch him doing weird psychic shit. And he goes inside, and virtually immediately weird shit starts happening. Sukina answers the door, and is like, oh, we've been expecting you. And he's like, really? But he doesn't know who she is because yeah. he missed that part of the orientation. Yeah, he doesn't know that. Which, how would the house know that? Okay. Yeah, totally. No, this is nonsense. She guides him. Well, first she lets him into the house and then she disappears. And then he walks into the solarium and gets eaten. We don't know. Something comes at him from the from the ceiling. Yes. Um, I mean, is it ghosts? Is it a plant that's alive? We don't know. But he drops his cell phone. Yeah. Which they find... Almost immediately. And they're like, that reporter's here. They call the last number on there. It goes to the professor's voicemail. They threaten him. You know, uh, we don't know where he is, but we found his phone. And da, 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 da. 
Only later do they get worried when he still hasn't shown up. But that's that's it for Jimmy Simpson in his corporeal form. Yes, he becomes a ghost. Yes. Anyone who dies there becomes a ghost. Just like in The Shining. Just like in um, uh, American Horror Story. Yeah. Oh, we also meet Emery's mom, who's Eddie's mom from It. Yeah. Like, to a T. <laughs> Stephen King has cliches, and this is one of them. <laughs> That's too much cream. You'll make yourself fat. Er. That's part one. Part two, they get to Rose Red, they tour the whole mansion, and they talk about how the place is fucking nuts. They find the library, but it isn't where it should be, and the library is a circular room with books all along the walls and a mirrored floor. They find the dude's cell phone, they confront the professor, uh... But that night, Emery sees a ghost, and I kind of love this ghost. It's a little bit old school, like it's almost like a puppet oh, kind of thing. Of Ellen Rimbauer. Yeah, and and I, I kind of love it. I love that he's not afraid of her. Yeah, I, I just, love I that love about that. him. Yeah, it's so it's interesting. Because he's just like, God damn it, these fucking ghosts, what do you want? Yeah, and he copes by eating a lot. That's why yes, he's fat. That is why he's fat, uh-huh. it is his coping mechanism. But Matt Kessler is not fat. He's he gained some weight for the role and then wore a fat suit. Basically, everyone sees kind of something funky that night. I think the blonde dies that night and no one notices. Yes. <laughs> and the audience doesn't really notice because we don't see it happen. Yeah, I know. I totally didn't catch that she died. Just all of a sudden she's a fucking ghost. <laughs> because it's it's like a TV show. And I mean, the same thing that happened to. Jimmy Simpson is that like the camera kind of came at him and he screamed, but we ne- we don't see what happened to him. But it's clear that he's dead. Pam is taken outside by a ghost who and disguises itself as um, the old Christian lady. Yeah, and that happens a lot. And, yeah, so this, th- I mean, it follows. They say you know it it will become someone that you love to hurt you and that's kind of what's happening here or in house on haunted hill the one time in the movie when it takes on the form of one of them yeah remember tay diggs leads yes yeah chick Uh down the hall it's very similar to that yes where she is like hey come with me i found something it explains everything that is the ghosts like one tactic to they disguise do it several themselves times. several times. Disguise themselves as somebody in the group, confront one of the people, one of the other people in the group, and say, Hey, we found something. It explains everything. Specifically like that. No questions asked by the actual person being lured, and then they just take them somewhere. What is it? <laughs> it's Steve. He's found something amazing. It, it explains so much. Explains what? What are you talking about? In this case, Pam goes to the garden pond and maybe drowns. No idea. It happens no off screen. No clue. Just the next time we see her, she's a ghost. Yes. So when Professor Miller, the head of the, the psychology department, finally comes into work the next day and gets the voicemail, it says something that we never heard. Which, did the house change what the message was? Was he actually saying one thing, but everyone heard something else? Which is that... Jimmy Simpson is dead, His he slit his own throat, and he wrote your name in blood. Yes, this was confusing. Yeah. 
They didn't show us what he said. Well, okay, so, so that's the thing. There's the one thing where Steve says something, and it's just like, hey, we know he's here, and we know we know he's sent by you. Click. That but was then, the first time. But the then the next time, morning, yeah. We don't know what he says. Steve and Nick are talking to each other, and... Nick leaves a message. One of the two of them leaves another message and we don't hear what it says. And then when he comes into work, this is the message that's left on the voicemail. Which, by the way, that's exactly what happened to Nit. Is it? Stan, well, he doesn't slit his own throat. He slits his wrists and on the wall, he writes it in blood. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. So Dr. Miller's like, "Uh, I got to go find out what's going on. This is, you know, because I'm going to be implicated in his death or Whatever. <laughs> and Emery's mom is like, my son hasn't called me yet because all the phone lines are out. And he's said in the past, she's going to be worried about me. This is not good. And so she panics and she drives out to the mansion as well. They get there at the same time. They both go. She's rude to the doctor and he's incredulous. And they go inside and they see ghosts and they go chasing off after them and then kind of. Nothing comes of that, almost. It's it's very weird. She thinks she sees her son and then chases off after them into the brush on the grounds of, of the mansion. She goes insane. Yeah. That's what's important there. And the doctor- I think she dies. She must die because she becomes a ghost later. She does, but I think she actually dies later. Oh, okay. And the doctor chases after her because he rear-ended her because she stopped so suddenly and- we need to exchange insurance information and then runs off after her. Emery can hear this, but he's like, no, how stop doing this. Save your warnings for somebody who's not broke. He thinks it's the ghost fucking with him. Yes. he Because he's already been fucked with already. Uh-huh. What he has to do is he has to tell himself it's not there. Because he says that. Not there, not there, not there. And then yeah. it will disappear. Again, kind of like. What if the kid in the sixth sense grew up without therapy? Exactly. And so this is when Vic is led outside by the ghost of Pam or some other ghost that's disguised as Pam, takes him outside. He sees a statue tear its face off. Whatever. It's nonsense and totally pointless. But I then he enjoyed this movie. <laughs> but then he starts having a heart attack. And he's banging on the door, and the only one inside is Emery, and he's like, not there, not there, not there. Nick comes up and he's like, what are you doing? He needs help. But he's already dead at this point. Yes. And he blames Emery for not helping him when he was begging you for help. Which is unfair. Right. I understand that Vic doesn't really get what's going on with Emery and nobody really likes Emery. So it's easy to blame him for shit. uh But the audience knows he can't tell what's real and what's not real. And it's not fucking fair to be like, you should have known that was real. Yeah. You're right. Meanwhile, Emery's mom gets knocked out by a ghost outside, and that's the end of part two. Not a whole hell of a lot happened, but we do see, like, relationships forming with people. Joyce is starting to become a little bit catty, especially with Steve, who we start to like a little bit more. He starts to bond with Rachel and Annie, uh, the psychic and her older sister. And Annie and Steve start to get this sort of connection. And she starts to respond to him in a way that she doesn't with anybody. Nick also starts to form a bond with her and he starts using her a little bit. And we start to wonder, is Nick good? Is he bad? 
I don't know. Yeah, he's He seems weird. kind, but he seems to just be kind in order to get what he wants. Yeah. And and it's really, really unclear, but we also see the actual house shifting and changing. Yes. And, throughout this episode. Yeah, and like, like we said, like, Stephen kind of comes, he has like memories of when he was a kid and how the, the book, the house terrified him and how rooms would appear when he was a kid that now he's seeing for the first time in 20 years. Yeah. And Nick is challenging him like, oh, what happened when you got lost here? Because he can see inside his head. And he doesn't want to remember. And he doesn't want to remember that. Yeah. And so this all happens in part two. Also, Annie can be a little weird too. Yeah, you don't know if she's just evil or not, or if she's just a little girl with autism who's driven by her desires. Exactly. I, I mean, like, you can't – some of the things she does, it's like – it's because she doesn't know how to handle her emotions, and yeah. she has this power that can get out of control, right? Yeah. And it it is, like Chris just said, influenced by her desires. It's not her being able to think – that's wrong, I shouldn't do that. It's, I want this, and so it happens. But then there are other times where she can be totally benevolent and, like, care about what happens to you. Yeah. So it's very strange. It's it's hard to tell if she's a good, if, she, if you're a good witch or a bad yeah. witch. Yeah, but it, but it is a little bit clear if you start analyzing when she gets upset and who she gets upset at. Because she never attacks Rachel and she never attacks Steve. Like, the people that she has the closest relationship with and who are kind to her and looking out for her best interest. Not selfishly like her dad was or being overly protective, but looking out for what she, what Annie wants. Well, the funny thing about that is, and this will come up later, but I'll just bring it up now. Yeah. I actually love that the father, who you're not supposed to like, and Emery, who... I think we're not supposed to like, but I fucking loved him. Yeah. They both call her out on her shit. Yeah. And they're like, hey, you know what? You may be a great sister, but we all know that you just want to get rid of Annie. Right. Because the money you're going to get from this is going to allow you to send Annie to a great school that can take care of her, but also take her out of your life. Yes. Because – Rachel, sister, who is named, defined with her relationship to Annie, uh, has to take care of her. And she does love her and she, she does. does want to take care of her, but it is a secret inside of her. She hates that that's what her entire life is. Yes. Yeah. And two birds, basically, right? She can be sent to a school that can take care of her and can relieve Rachel of that burden. Yeah, and it sucks, too, because later she admits it. Like, Emery kind of attacks her for it. Yeah. And everybody gets pissed off at Emery. But, like, at this point, Emery's gone kind of crazy because of all the shit that he's seen. Yeah. And it's understandable. But, like, everybody gets pissed at him, and she runs away crying. And then Steven, I think, is the one that goes after her. And he's like, I'm so sorry. And she's like, he's right. And it's like, nobody else gets to hear that. Right, yeah. So... Speaking of Emery going crazy, he realizes that his mother is actually real, <laughs> but she's been attacked. Like, okay, so when she's alive, he thinks she's a ghost. She was attacked and killed by Kevin. Kevin is his name, Rimbauer. So then the next time he sees her, he's like, oh my God, you're real. So he's wrong both times. <laughs> it, it like flips. So he chases her outside. He finds Dr. Miller, who's freaked out and thinks that. 
Emery's a ghost because he was earlier attacked uh, as well. And he runs off. Emery tries to chase him down. He can't. And then Dr. Miller gets attacked by Kevin as well. And he dies. We see him very little after this because, like I said, David Dukes died in real life. So this is Emery and he's going fucking insane because he can't find his mom now. Everything is going really, really crazy and getting out of control. So he tries to tell everybody, we got to leave. Somewhere in here, Annie falls, hurts her head, and falls unconscious. And that has an effect on what's going Everything on in the house. Everything gets un- unlocked. Because and the house, the doors have been unlocked, this, have been locked this entire time. Yes, and Emery desperately wants to leave. I forget what stops him. Something stops him. Uh, he runs into Pam. And an actress who used to frequent parties at this house, the ghost of of her. All of the ghosts have been bothering Emery because he can see them the clearest. Yes, but he also has the strongest power to get rid of them by closing his eyes and plugging his ears and going, not real, not real, not real. Mm -hmm. So there is that. But this is the point when Annie wakes up and all the doors slam shut again. Because what's-her-face, Dr. Reardon has kind of gone nuts at this point because she so desperately wants this to be real and she so desperately wants to prove to the world that it's real. Yeah. She's like, you She just, gets a one-track mind. You just keep letting it work through you. Right. And there's this, like, light that we keep seeing appear in front of Annie and that back and forth people tell her to go touch the light, don't touch the light. Somebody makes it go away by throwing something at it. Usually it's Steve... And but like Nick kind of wants her to touch it, and Joyce no, kind of wants her to touch not, it. Nick doesn't not the second want her to touch t- not it. the second time. The first time he's intrigued by it, and it's it's very unclear what the light's supposed to be, what it's supposed to it do, ends up being what's going to happen to her. I know, and who wants first, her to touch it and who doesn't. It seems like it could be a good thing for right. her, right? But, but she she slams the door shut just as Emery's trying to leave, severing his fingers. Yes, and. I mean, at this point, there's no question Annie is essentially Danny. Yes. The house is using her power. Yes. Just like it uses Danny's power. And it power. really wants to. Yep. Uh, interesting. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> That's the shining, in case you don't know what I'm talking about. Steven. <laughs> so they're taking care of Emery, and this is when Joyce tells Annie, keep everything locked up. Let the house use you. Yeah, keep doing what you're doing, and I will give you the dollhouse, the model of this house that you were so interested in and you love so much. Also around this time, Steve, who's forming a relationship with Annie, and she's building, like, domino circles and stuff like that in the solarium, and, uh, you know, she's just biding her time and staying occupied by focusing on one thing. He starts to discover... That even though he's claimed to have no latent psychic abilities this entire time, that he can communicate with Annie telepathically. Yes. And this makes Annie very happy. And he likes Annie a lot. So they end up, like, communicating this way and form this kind of, like, bond. Steve starts to discover all this weird stuff in his past and what happened when he got lost, when his his mother completely trashed shows up to the place to loot to loot the place and set and make money because her life was not going great emory is like it's annie's fault she's the one she's the conduit she's keeping this whole place sealed up knock her out 
<laughs> right? Yeah, like at first he's like, just kill her. And they're like, excuse me? And he's like, just knock her out then. You've got to do something. Everyone is ignoring the fact that she is the reason this is happening. And he's right. That's what's so infuriating. Yes, it, the idea of killing her is ridiculous. But it's just like, he's right. And they all know it. When she was knocked out, the house unlocked. Yes. And this is when they confront Joyce like, why did you bring us here? Did you bring us here because you knew this was going to happen? Or did you suspect this was going to happen and just didn't care? Like, was your goal to make all this stuff happen? Or did you just think it was a consequence and not care about our lives? And I don't think she even really knows anymore. I think no. at this point, the house has kind of taken hold of her sanity. And so yeah. she's she's pretty much insane. And it's kind of like with Annie, she needs something to wake her up. As opposed to Annie needs to be knocked out. She needs to be woken the fuck up. And she doesn't want to be. She's very happy there. Yeah. Just like just like uh, the lady from Burnt Offerings. Yeah. She wants this. This makes her very, very happy until the very end. <laughs> so Kathy is attacked by Emery's mom, who, I'm sorry, hasn't died yet. She's just gone completely nuts. And feral, basically. Nick stops her. They tie her up. And they leave her in the kitchen, and they're like, we can't tell Emery about this. He is already very <laughs> unstable. We cannot tell her about this. But Sukina appears and takes her into the wine cellar. They become lost, Nick and Kathy, because the whole place changes and gets separated from the rest of the group. And some skeleton thing, like, attacks Nick. And Kathy loses him now, and he's gone, and we don't know where he went. She eventually makes it to the attic and does this her automatic writing thing. This is when she sees Rimbauer being killed by Ellen and Sukina. That that's what she sees when she does her automatic writing. And we she knew ends up, that he fell out a window. Everyone assumed it was suicide, but yeah. in reality she pushed him. And she ends up writing on the painting No Suicide Murder Ellen Sukina. Yeah, and just just in a the quick dust in the in the painting. Just a quick explanation why Ellen got some weird disease on their honeymoon, and she the African disease she calls it, and she assumes that it is a venereal disease, and that she got it from her husband who was cheating on her. Yeah, and so she blames him for that. When they get back, she has her son, who's perfectly healthy, but when she has her daughter, her daughter is born with a withered arm, and so she blames her husband because she thinks it has something to do with the disease that he gave her back on their honeymoon. And so that is why she hates her husband so much, and then is why she kills him later, after her daughter disappears, which yeah. had nothing to do with her. It had everything to do with the house. And before the house was even made, people were killed while the house was being made, which is kind of harkens back to The Shining, that it's just the land. That it, it has built itself up with the house, but it's just the land that it was built on is evil. Right. And it, and it uses the house as like a tool, basically. So Steve and Rachel go look for Kathy and Nick. They find Kathy in the attic as she's being attacked by one of these corpses. We don't know who yet. And Steve lunges at the corpse and it just collapses to the floor. And they they discover it has a withered arm. So this is the daughter kind of grown up. 
mm-hmm. and 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 having died. But for some reason, when Steve touched the corpse, it just collapsed to the floor. He has some connection. Could it be that he's a Rimbauer and he's the end of the line and all of that nonsense? Her name is April. A light comes out of her mouth and then her body just turns to dust. So the whole group ends up reuniting. Emery attacks Annie and Annie makes a suit of armor animate and attack Emery. And he almost dies. Joyce breaks them up. Steve, this is this is the weird part that I didn't quite get. Steve, because he has a link with Annie, like he can have this sort of telepathic communication thing. He links with Annie and then he links with Kathy. So then Kathy can write what's going on in Annie's head. Mm-hmm. It wasn't entirely clear. Because what they what they tell us is that her mind is so elevated above theirs that they can't even though she can communicate with them mm-hmm. they can't reach her which is this autism cliche that's it it kind of others people with autism to be like oh what if the reason they're so enclosed in is because they're so psychically strong and elevated above everyone else and it's but he does but steven does that a lot steven yeah. usually gives powers to people who have a disability. Yeah. And I think that it's his way of giving them something that we don't understand. And that's it's it's Steven's way of telling us, "Hey, you know what? You should respect these people and you should treat them uh with love and ca- kindness yeah. because they just because you don't understand them that doesn't mean that they're dumb." Right. right. No, I'm just saying it feeds into that cliche. I'm not saying it's like intentionally disrespectful to them. Anyway, So she, instead of writing, she ends up drawing Kathy and she draws very similar to what we saw at the whole beginning of all of this rocks falling on the house. And that's when rocks actually start to fall. They destroy the cars outside. They uh, start really, really damaging Rose Red. And then she writes two phrases, help us and open the doors. And that's when Annie opens up the house, basically. So who gets out? Steve. Who tries to bring his girlfriend. Yes. But she's gone crazy. She's gone crazy, yes. Emery, with no fingers. Kathy, Rachel, and Annie. So they go to leave. Joyce says, no, absolutely not. She's not going to leave. She's gone totally insane. And it's really sad because Stephen, I mean, not Stephen, Vic dies. I forget why. He dies like saving somebody, I think. Nick. Nick. Yeah. I forget how he died. Well, he disappeared back when he tried to protect Kathy when they were yeah. separated. And we never actually, he gets attacked by a corpse. We never actually see he specifically saves what Kathy, happens. But he dies. Yeah, he separates them. He gets her in another room and makes the corpse go after him. But we, but again, just like many people, we have no idea what actually happens to, to kill them, um, which is very confusing because. That's a big problem with this, because when we don't see people die, we just see them get attacked. It makes it very unclear between the people who are killed, like Jimmy, and the people who are just attacked and go insane, like Emery's mom. Like, which is it? And we don't know what happens until we see them next, and it's like, wait, are you a ghost or no? <laughs> Maybe that's intentional, but it ultimately makes the 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 plot a little bit confusing. Joyce suddenly comes to her senses at the very last second. But it's too late. So Ellen shows up. 
the ghost of Ellen shows up and is like trying to take Steve Come with us, come with us, or whatever. Um, take the hammer. Take the hammer. You wanted it when you were a child, you want it now. If you leave without it, you will want it for the rest of your life. Yeah, and somebody like Rachel or somebody, I can't remember who, is like, no, Steve, don't take it. Yeah, because her, him and Rachel kind of like each other now. But it's so. it's very muted, like, Steve, no, don't take it. Like, it's not like panicked or or, or you know, concerned or anything like that. And then he takes the hammer and says, I don't want this here. You take it. And he just throws the hammer at Ellen's ghost and it, you know, disappears. Steve, no, please don't take it. He has no choice. He's one of us. Steve. But I do have a choice. I don't want this. Here, you take it. Okay, great, Steve. You did a great job of fighting back against the power and the thing that was compelling you this whole entire time. Emery gets a great moment here. Because this is when his mom, the ghost of his mom, shows up through the mirror and grabs him and tries to pull him in. But he fights back against his mom. He he begs the others, help me. And Kathy, the old lady, says, fight her. For once in your life, fight your mother. Yes. Now... Emotionally, this is an important moment, but practically, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Why doesn't somebody just help him? Have you been doing that nasty thing again? I hear you in your room at night. <laughs> Mommy hears everything. Help me for God's sake, help me! No, this is a test, Emery. It's your life or your death. And we're not going to help you because this is a great opportunity for you to grow as a person. (laughs) He might die. (laughs) Help the man. (laughs) But he finally says no and fights against his mom. Yeah. It's a great moment. (laughs) (laughs) But again, practically, it's ridiculous. Yes. So they all get out. And they're try- they're they're dodging boulders falling and stuff like that. Joyce is like, oh, shit, I guess I should have left. But all the ghosts show up. So we have Nick, Pam, Vic, Emery's mom. Who else? Sakina, Ellen, all uh, the them. actress. They're all sh- they all show up. And they uh, all Ellen's circle husband. around her. And then she screams. And, and it's then it- creepy. Yeah, it is a creepy moment. They're coming at her and she wants to get away. But it's like, it's too late, girl. Yeah. You should have been a better person. So, six months pass. They show back up at Rose Red because they're meeting up again because the house is about to be demolished, which doesn't meet up with Steve's original timeline where he says by September it'll be demolished because this is like June when it hap- when, when the story takes place. So six months later and it's about to be demolished, he's behind schedule. <laughs> and they're going to replace it with condominiums. He's going to make tons of money off of this. So they all lay roses at the entranceway to the house or whatever. And then they leave and we see Ellen, the matriarch, uh, Sukina, and Joyce watching them as they go to leave. And it's like, are we supposed to feel something for Joyce? No, she's she's content now because she's a ghost. Do you think? I felt it was a little bit melancholic. Hmm. I don't know. Anyway, that is the show. 
That is all four hours of the show. Kelsey. Yes. Lightning round. I like that at the beginning of the third episode where we get these like we get voiceovers at the beginning of every episode. And at the beginning of the third episode, Joyce is narrating. And at one point she defines what haunted means because she considers houses to be alive, homes to be living. She says, we say haunted, but what we mean is the house has gone insane. We say haunted, but we mean the house has gone insane. I thought that that was a clever little phrasing. At the very beginning, we hear the lady across the street whose dog is now going to be put down. Yeah. She's talking to her husband and she's like, it was that girl. You know that Buddy has never bit anybody in his life. It was her. He sensed something in her. And I don't just mean that she's autistic. Yeah. It's like Stephen getting down. Listen, I know I'm, I have a character saying that she's weird. I don't mean that she's autistic. That was that was Steven's disclaimer, but it's a fantastic delivery. And I don't just mean she's autistic. I'm telling you, there's something wrong with that little girl. And I don't just mean that she's autistic. A faucet explodes and all the water goes everywhere and then it freezes into ice spears. And it is a god-awful effect. It is really bad. It This movie feels like it's a movie made in the early to mid 90s because it's a TV miniseries, right? Its budget's not crazy huge and it's so long that it needs to be spread off, spread over this long time period. So some of these effects, I'm like, I don't know why they're even trying these effects. One effect that worked though and was very practical was the mirrored floor of the library turns into like liquid, like this dark liquid as somebody's trudging through it. I thought that was really well done and it was practical. (laughs) But because it's mirrored, the transition between the the liquid and the mirror was very, very effective and it worked very well. Although you could see where the water ended and the actual physical floor began. (laughs) So that was a little clear. But again, I mean, kind of like in Nightmare on Elm Street, where her feet go into the oatmeal of the stairs and you can still kind of see where it is oatmeal. I just love that concept and it is very well pulled off, I feel. At one point, she when she's telling them the history of the house, she describes how a man shot and killed a bunch of people and then went into a saloon, sat down and just kept eating. That sounds familiar. It is straight out of it. Yeah. That that is literally straight out of it. (laughs) Yeah. This was my question, and it bothered me throughout the whole entire movie, which is Joyce's obsession is about going to this haunted house to prove that the haunting is real and that psychic phenomena is real and that sometimes reality cannot be quantified, but I can prove to you that it exists. All right. Just fucking study Annie. Don't go into the house, study Annie. She's a powerful psychic that can have rocks rain from the sky, and you know this, and your whole objective is to bring her into the house so she can make weird shit happen, which, by the way, are you trying to deceive people that it's the house when it's actually Annie? Because for a while there, it seems like that's your goal, but you're very confident that Annie's going to be able to make weird shit happen. If you're that confident, just fucking study Annie and use her as proof. Okay, so I said this throughout the movie while we were watching it. This is littered with Stephen King cliches, and one of them is an obsession 
And she has an obsession with Rose Red. Yeah, very much so, because the big objection of Annie's family and sending her with Joyce, and it's this big question of, is she going to go on this expedition, is that the dad doesn't like the idea of sending his obviously psychic and autistic daughter into a fucking haunted house. So fuck the house, study the girl. If Annie is integral to you proving that psychic phenomena exists and Annie will only go if you don't go to a haunted house, fuck the house. Like, the motivations are all over the place, but they just write it off as, oh, but she's obsessed. Yes, but fucking why? Why is it that she's obsessed with this house? No idea. When Vic is trying to get in the house and he's having his heart attack and Emery is like, nope, I'm not going to let you in. You're a ghost. I'm not going to listen to you. He says, not by the hair of your chinny chin chin. Not by the hair in your chinny chin chin. Yeah, that's The Shining, the Shining, which is something that Jack Nicholson says. Not by the hair on your chinny chin chin. Not by the hair on my oh, chinny chin chin. One, one. Not there. Emery also says the line, did I stutter? which is probably a reference to Bill, the stuttering main character of It. These are all more references to other things. Joyce says everyone in the group is a candle, but Annie is a searchlight when referring to their power. Again, just fucking study Annie if she's so fucking powerful. In Doctor Sleep, which is a sequel to The Shining, Danny calls himself a flashlight, but another more powerful psychic, a lighthouse. So... Stephen has his cliches. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some reason, Annie likes very particular songs. Uh, In the Mood is the one that plays often, and it fucking never comes up, except for one time there's a there's like a vitriola or something like that in the house, and it plays the song magically. They're like, oh, we tried that. That's broken. And then it works. But that's that's the only point of it. But they spend so much goddamn time on the songs she likes, and it has no effect on the plot whatsoever. I wrote down here, a psychic or telekinetic kid? You don't say. <laughs> the raining stones on a house is obviously straight out of Carrie. Because mm-hmm. that happens in the Carrie novel. It happens in the movie, too, at the end, right? I think she just makes the house crumble. Crush, yeah, but not not by rocks. But that is in the novel, yes. is the rocks fall on the house. Of all things, this is the repository of Stephen King cliches. Steven's in this movie. He plays a pizza delivery guy. A very odd one. <laughs> is this place really haunted or whatever it is that he says? <laughs> yes. And then Emery's rude to him and slams the door in his face. <laughs> hey, this is some place, huh? Is it haunted? Yeah. But there goes a delivery man who asks me stupid questions and never escaped. There's a dance sequence. Yes, where the, the okay, so that's what happens with the music. The music plays on the record player magically, and then everyone feels compelled to dance and with each other. Everyone's a great swing dancer. And then Steve, And they recognize that. They yeah. they mention how are we suddenly able to do this? Yeah. Steve and Pam or Steve and Rachel, I can't remember which, end up floating in the air. And they're like, oh, this is weird. Whoa, fun. Uh, <laughs> Yay, we're flying a la fucking La La Land. Yes. There's a weird moment and it comes out of nowhere and then it goes nowhere. There is a scene where the kids, so it's before the withered arm girl is taken and I guess it's during the summer because the sun is there. 
They watch their uncle hang himself because he's gay and his father found out. Yeah. What the fuck? Like, it literally, it's just like, it's just another story showing us how they have another ghost. It kills people, blah, blah, blah. But what? This what? is this is another symptom of it being a king story. <laughs> he was orig- this was originally going to be a movie, but then they ended up making it a miniseries and he was thankful because it gives him the time to tell stories at the pace that he's used to or at least closer to that. He's used to having these giant books where he can divert on these tangents that go on and on and on and on and on to tell you a little bit of insight about one character. And that's the way that Stephen King writes. It is. But it's fine because his writing really keeps you focused. Like, it's really easy to pay attention to everything that he says and not care that he's taking you off on this tangent because you know you're eventually going to come back and that this is a fun little offshoot. But in a miniseries like this, it's like this could have been a single episode, this whole fucking thing. It did not need to be three episodes long. I liked it. (laughs) The thing about a TV miniseries is that it's almost impossible to scare you with a haunting story, regardless of the budget. Almost anything can happen at any time for any reason. And then just go away like that because it's a haunting story. And that's how scares in both haunted house movies and Stephen King stories tend to work because you're wrapped up in them and you're focused. Like I say, you don't care that Stephen King goes off on these tangents because you can just focus on this one moment and you're engaged completely. And that's why the haunted house and Stephen King stories work, not because the individual things that happen are necessarily scary on their own. Miniseries tend to fall apart in this way partly because of like the commercial break structure and then the episodic format it's designed to hook and release hook and release hook and release over and over and over again like making you beg for the show to come back every time from commercial or the next day when the next episode airs but that's not what's effective about haunting stories and Stephen King stories they're not hook and release type stories and so forcing it into this it's Partly because of budget, but partly because of this is why things like The Stand and this and just Stephen King miniseries and his version of The Shining don't work on me because of this hook and release format where it's like, oh, scary thing, commercial break. (laughs) And then you come back and either mid scary thing and now I'm not engaged anymore and you've lost me or they cut to some other thing and you're like- It seems like they did. A lot in this. Yes. And now I don't know what I was supposed to be scared of or what ended up happening and not in a way that I want to know the mystery, but really I'm frustrated. There's a tagline for this. Every house has a story to tell. This one will kill you. What? (laughs) Is that a joke? Is that a turn of phrase? Yes. Is it the house will kill you or the story will kill you? Because the way this is set up, the phrasing of this is that the story will kill you. And that doesn't make any fucking sense. It's the house that's going to kill you. uh, What? I hate bad taglines. I also love them. Um... The, it seems like the characters who are new ghosts, like, get stuck on one line because every time they show up, they say the same thing. Westworld guy has the worst one. Uh-huh. Say cheese. Oh, my God. You're right. And it took us a while to figure out what he was saying. Because he says it so fast. Say cheese. 
Yeah. <laughs> and you realize he's a photographer. Uh-huh. And he says, say cheese. Uh-huh. But he's it's about really, to really bad. you. Oh. <laughs> I swear he looks just like the dead kid from Pet Cemetery. And that is why when I saw Pet Cemetery for the long okay, time, to be clear, I thought it was him. To be clear, not the little kid. No, 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 no. She says kid, college student. College student. Who dies in Pet Cemetery and who the main character sees throughout the movie. He tries to warn him. Yeah. I, I swear they look almost identical once they're in that makeup. Except when Pet Cemetery came out, Jimmy Simpson was probably Gage's age. Yes. So that doesn't work. Right. I love that Emery, at one point, the dead actress and the dead psychic lady and the dead Ellen Rimbauer kind of come after him. Yeah. Right? And they're trying to be seductive, but they're obviously decaying and dead. Yeah, it's really cool. And and he's like, I'm hard up, girls, but not quite that hard up. Yeah. Uh I fucking love Emery. Yeah, even though, at one point, he's demanding that they kill Annie. Because he's gone crazy. Yeah, uh uh-huh. But again... him going crazy is much more compelling than Joyce going crazy. Oh, yes. Much more. This story is also how Stephen King, like, he used it as therapy after his accident. Everyone knows he was hit by that van while he was on a walk, and it completely ruined him, and it prevented him from getting hooked on drugs again. Uh, Because he was absolutely a drug addict when he was younger, and with the pain medication, that was a big problem for him. So he would write instead, and this story specifically is what he was writing at that time. In fact, Emery is almost like the guy from the Langoliers at that point, when he's like, kill the- Balky Bartakamus from the Langoliers? (laughs) Yes. But the difference there is that you never like the guy from the Langoliers. He's just an asshole the entire time. And yeah. when he says, kill the blind girl, yeah. it's, it's fucked up. But with What Emery, is it that he screams in the Langoliers? Da, da, da. <laughs> Hold on. Scaring the little girl? That's what it is, yes. Scaring the little girl? <laughs> but I... And I think we're kind of supposed to feel like Emery is like that guy, but the and like unredeemable almost. But they, but in this movie, you know, aside from what happens in the Langoliers, different from that is he does get redeemed, kind of. He gets his growth moment, basically. But I love him throughout the film. He's very different from the well, guy because in he's, Langoliers. He's a little bit more sympathetic. Yeah. Because the guy in Langoliers is just a normal dude who's stressed out by well, his job and takes it out on everyone else. Well, he and was his father's his father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you this, care more about Emery. Because he's he's haunted by ghosts. <laughs> his entire life. He's like the kid from The Success. Yes. And we, who we automatically already sympathize with. Yes. So, yeah, totally. And Danny Torrance, right? Like Exactly. Yeah. Uh, The actress, Deanna Petrie, is a reference to the protagonist of Salem's Lot, Mark Petrie. Emery is the name in the stand. Harold Emery Lauder is a character in the stand. There are several times that Kathy is all about God, and we already know Stephen King has a weird relationship with people who are all about God. He either loves you or he thinks you're awful. Yeah. Um, She is one of the great ones. And at one point, and this pisses me off, because I think this is when Nick dies. 
at one point she's going to go somewhere in the house and they're like, okay, you shouldn't go alone. And she goes, I've got to protect me or whatever. I never go alone. Right. God goes with me everywhere. And I wrote down, okay, but you should still not go fucking alone. <laughs> yes, I get your point. <laughs> Very profound and powerful. Yes, but please take somebody with you. <laughs> and I'm fairly certain that this is, she gets lost because the house moves around yeah, uh-huh. and Nick goes after her and then fucking Nick dies. Yes. Uh-huh. And Nick, who's intriguing, he's fucking hot as shit. And he he has these great like like psychic abilities, and he's really fucking charming. And then he dies protecting Kathy, and you're and like, I'm God, God sure, damn it! I'm pretty sure he's the one who knocks out Emery's mother with a pool ball because she's just crazy. Yes, yeah, no, because she tax, attacks Kathy. <laughs> it just totally knocks her out, and then is like, let's not tell Emery about this. <laughs> There are a lot of lines in this, and I'm not going to go over all of them because it would just take too long. But there are a lot of lines in this that's just like just so Stephen King. And it's crazy how if you read enough of his books, you just see that. And it's just like, oh, I heard you there, Stephen. I heard you. And it's hard to describe without giving you all of them. And I could, but I'm not going to. Yeah. But it's just. They're very, very King lines in this. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. All right, Kelsey, what do you think this TV miniseries got on Rotten Tomatoes? It does have a score. I mean, I guess it's pretty low. I don't get, I fucking like this movie a lot. I'm going to guess it's 44. 45? You are getting really good at this, by the way. (laughs) Uh, The consensus being Rose Red asks too many questions and provides too few answers to satisfy, given its lack of scares, though King Completists may enjoy wandering its somewhat mysterious halls. And if anything, I think you can describe Kelsey as a King Completist. Even though she hasn't yet... She's absolutely on her way and will read almost anything he's ever written. It's difficult because he's written so much. Yeah. It is it is hard. <laughs> like I and I don't have enough time and there's so many things I want to read. I just read Burnt Offerings, you know, but before that I did read Pet Cemetery because they're they're making the new movie. I would love to have read all of his stuff. It's just there's too much. Yeah. What would you have given it? I'm giving it a 70. I liked it. There's a lot of stuff that's charming about Stephen King and his writing. And when you recognize the the tropes, it's very charming and fun. And then on the other hand, it's frustrating and annoying. So I'm back and forth on this. It's not the worst thing he's ever done by a long shot. There's a lot to really enjoy about this, but it did absolutely did not need to be a miniseries. It did not need to be this long. So much chaff could have been removed from the wheat of the story that's here. And because it's not scary, it's interesting. Compacting it would have made it feel on the whole more interesting, like percentage wise. So that really hurts it in my mind. But I will still end up on the positive side of this, but real close. I'm going to give it a 55. Boo. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It, I mean, it... it, it, I was screaming at the TV repeatedly. It has a lot of things for me. It's a haunted house. It's Stephen King. It's 
lots of characters. Characters that you love. It's yeah. psychic mm-hmm. abilities. I mean, it's it's all I the love the I concept love. that each of them had a different psychic ability. Yes. That was really fun. Yes. Yeah. But, I mean, it wasn't used that much. Because he didn't have the time to, which yeah, is why Pam, he wanted it to be a miniseries. Pam cries at the front door because she relives an experience. And then when they're like, what is it, Pam? She's like, oh, it's nothing. Because she forgets it. And that's a Stephen King thing. But that's unclear. <laughs> and again, doesn't contribute to the story. Okay. It's just more character building, which he loves to fucking do. <laughs> Let it go, Stephen. We get it. It's not a book. <laughs> books. That's what books are for. <laughs> Anyway, that is 2002's Rose Red. Thus completes our episode this week. But first, who recommended this? Chloe recommended that we watch this with uh, Rose Red with the Winchester. Totally understandable. Totally understandable. But they were both made within the last 20 years. So I put it with Burnt Offerings, which I I I think it paired up pretty well. I hope Uh Chloe enjoys that connection. And Chloe, I think you would like burnt offerings yeah chloe so thank you very much for your suggestion we're, we're gonna get winchester into the lineup it is there uh, somehow i have put it in there yeah but what are we watching next week all right guys change of plans here a little last minute we are actually changing up what we're watching next week from what we recorded in this episode next week we're going to be watching 1988's the lady in white and 2006's monster house Two films about old houses and mysterious ladies. That is next week. Until then, you can always reach us on our website, which is podcemetery.com. You can spell that the real way or our way. You'll still get to the show either way. On the website, you can browse a list of all of our episodes, including every single movie that we've ever reviewed in alphabetical order, and that'll take you to the corresponding episode. Great way to get into the show if you're not a regular listener and you want to check out our back catalog. You can leave a comment there on any individual episode or make a recommendation just like Chloe. You can also email us at podcemetery at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at podcemetery. I'll oftentimes add comments about uh, episodes as I'm editing them so you get a little bit more information. Done that pretty heavily recently for movies like It Follows and that weird Thanksgiving one, Home Sweet Home. That was a fun one. There's some great clips in that if you check out our Twitter. Uh, Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. Writing reviews, especially five-star ones, really, really help us. Also, share us with your friends because that helps us even more. And listen in the damn first place. You guys are awesome and we love you so much. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. Any last words, Kelsey? Bad houses hate our warmth and our humanness. That blind hate of our humanity is what we mean when we use the word haunted. To the sacred place This ain't a dream I can't escape Smoldin' some fangs But a pick
Should people seek it out? Oh, you said see, get out. I was um, like, we're not talking about it. <laughs> that was an hour and 20 minutes. Have fun editing, babe.